Welcome to another adult Bible study guide exploring the book of Job. Written by Clifford Goldstein. Edited for audio and produced by the Ambassador Group. Narrated by Byron Phillips and Lynette Newhart. Exploration number five. Curse the day. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11. New King James Version. As we hear the story of Job, we have two distinct advantages. First, knowing how it ends, and second, knowing the background, the cosmic conflict operating behind the scenes. Job knew none of this. All he knew was that he was going along in his life just fine when suddenly one calamity after another, one tragedy after another, swooped down upon him. And next, this man, the greatest of all the people of the East, Job chapter 1 verse 3, was reduced to mourning and grieving on a pile of ashes. As we continue to explore Job, try to put yourself in Job's position. This will help you better understand the confusion, the anger, and the sorrow that he was going through. And in one sense, this shouldn't be very hard for you, should it? Not that you have experienced what Job did, but that who among us, born of human flesh, in a fallen world, doesn't know something of the perplexity that tragedy and suffering brings, especially when seeking to serve the Lord faithfully and do what is right in His sight. Imagine that you are Job. Inexplicably, your life, all that you have worked for, all that you have accomplished, all that God has blessed you with, comes tumbling down. It just doesn't make sense. There doesn't seem to be any reason, good or bad, for it. Years ago, a school bus went off the road, killing many of the children. In that context, one atheist said that this is the kind of thing you can expect in a world that has no meaning, no purpose, no direction. A tragedy like that has no meaning because the world itself has no meaning. As we have discovered, though, this answer doesn't work for the believer in God. And for Job, a faithful follower of the Lord, this answer didn't work either. But what was the answer? What was the explanation? Job didn't have one. All he had was his extreme grief 
and all the questions that inevitably accompanied it. Listen to Job chapter 3, verse 1 through 10. How does Job first express his grief? In what ways might you relate to what he is saying? After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And he said, Let the day on which I was born perish, and the night which announced there is a man-child conceived. May that day be darkness. Let God above not care about it, nor light shine on it. Let darkness and gloom claim it for their own. Let a cloud settle upon it. Let all that blackens the day terrify it, the day that I was born. As for that night, let darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not be counted in the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren and empty. Let no joyful voice enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are skilled in rousing up Leviathan. Let the stars of its early dawn be dark. Let the morning wait in vain for the light. Let it not see the eyelids of morning, the day's dawning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb nor hide trouble from my eyes. Life, of course, is a gift from God. We exist only because God has created us. So says Acts chapter 17 and verse 28. For in him we live and move and exist, that is, in him we actually have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. And Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive the glory and the honor and the power, for you created all things, and because of your will they exist, and were created and brought into being. Our very existence is a miracle one that has stumped modern science. Indeed, scientists aren't even in total agreement on what the definition of life is, much less how it came about, or even more important, why it did. Who, though, in moments of despair, hasn't wondered if life was worth it? We're not talking about the unfortunate cases of suicide. Rather, what about the times when we might have, like Job, wished that we hadn't been born to begin with. An ancient Greek once said that the best thing that could happen to a person outside of dying is never to have been born at all. That is, life can be so miserable that we would have been better off not even existing, and so be spared the inevitable anguish that comes with human life in this fallen world. Have you ever felt the way Job felt? That is, wishing you had never been born? Eventually, though, what happened? Of course, you felt better. How important it is for you to remember, then, even in your worst moments, 
that we have the hope, the prospect of things improving. Rest in the grave. Let's listen to Job chapter 3, verses 11 through 26. What is Job saying here? How is he continuing his lament? What does he say about death? Job chapter 3, verses 11 through 26. Why did I not die at birth? Come forth from the womb and expire. Why did the knees receive me, and why the breasts that I would nurse? For now I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept then. I would have been at rest in death with kings and counselors of the earth who built up now desolate ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver, or like a miscarriage which is hidden and put away, I would not exist like infants who never saw light. There in death the wicked cease from raging, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners rest together. They do not hear the taskmaster's voice. The small and the great are there, and the servant is free from his master. Why is the light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul who wait for death, but it does not come, and dig search for death more diligently than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and rejoice when they find the grave? Why is the light of day given to a man whose way is hidden, and whom God has hedged in? For my groaning comes at the sight of my food, and my cries of despair are poured out like water. For the thing which I greatly fear comes upon me, and that of which I am afraid has come upon me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet and I am not at rest, and yet trouble still comes upon me. Here are those three questions again. What was Job saying in these verses? How was he continuing his lament? What did he say about death? We can only imagine the terrible sorrow that poor Job was facing however hard it must have been to have his possessions destroyed and his health taken away from him, Job lost all his children, all of them. It's hard enough to imagine the pain of losing one child. Job lost them all, and he had ten. No wonder he wished that he was dead. And again, Job had no idea of the background behind it all. Not that it would have made him feel better had he known, would it? Notice, though, what Job says about death. If he had died, then what? The bliss of heaven? The joy of the presence of God? Playing a harp with the angels? There is nothing of that kind of theology there. Instead, what does Job say? For now I would have lain still 
and been quiet. I would have been asleep. Then I would have been at rest. Job chapter 3 and verse 13, New King James Version. Let's consider two Bible references, one from the Old Testament and the other from the New Testament. Question. How did what Job said fit in with what the Bible teaches on what happens after death? Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 5 says, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they no longer have a reward here, for the memory of them is forgotten. And John chapter 11, verse 11 through 14 he said this, and after that said, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him. The disciples answered, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. However, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was referring to natural sleep. So then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. In one of the oldest books of the Bible, we have what is perhaps one of the earliest expressions of what we call the state of the dead. All Job wanted at this point was to be at rest. Life suddenly had become so hard, so difficult, and so painful that he longed for what he knew death was, a peaceful rest in the tomb. He was so sad, so hurt, that forgetting all the joy he had in life before the calamities came, he wished he had died even at his birth. As a Christian, you certainly have wonderful promises for the future. At the same time, amid present sufferings, how can you learn to remember the good times you had in the past? and to draw comfort and solace from them. Other people's pain. Job finished his first lament as recorded in chapter 3. For the next two chapters, one of his friends, Eliphaz, gives Job a lecture. We will come back to that in exploration number 6. In chapters 6 and 7, Job continues to speak about his suffering. Oh, that my grief were fully weighed and my calamity laid with it on the scales, for then it would be heavier than the sands of the sea. Job chapter 6, verse 2 and 3, New King James Version. How is Job expressing his pain? This image gives us an idea about how Job perceived his suffering. 
If all the sands of the sea were on one side of the balances, and his grief and calamity on the other, his sufferings would outweigh all the sand. That's how real Job's pain was to him. And this was Job's pain alone, no one else's. Sometimes we hear the idea of the sum total of human suffering. And yet, this does not really express truth. We don't suffer in groups. We don't suffer anyone's pain but our own. We know only our own pain, only our own suffering. Job's pain, however great, was no greater than what any one individual could ever know. Some well-intentioned people might say to someone else, I feel your pain. They don't. They can't. All they can feel is their own pain that might come in response to someone else's suffering. But that's always and only what it is. Their own pain, not the other person's. We hear about disasters, human-made or otherwise, with large death tolls. The numbers of dead or injured stun us. We can hardly imagine such massive suffering. But as with Job, as with every case of fallen humanity from Adam and Eve in Eden to the end of this world, every fallen being who has ever lived can know only his or her own pain and no more. Of course, we never want to downplay individual suffering. And as Christians, we are called to seek to help alleviate hurt when and where we can. Two Bible references give those calls. James chapter 1 and verse 27. Pure and unblemished religion as it is expressed in outward acts, in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit and look after the fatherless and the widows in their distress, and to keep oneself uncontaminated by the secular world. Matthew chapter 25, verses 34 through 40. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you blessed of my Father, you favored of God, appointed to eternal salvation. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me with help and ministering care. I was in prison, and you came to me, ignoring personal danger. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick? or in prison, and come to you. The king will answer and say to them, I assure you, and most solemnly say to you, 
to the extent that you did it for one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it for me. Yet no matter how much suffering exists in the world, how thankful we can be that not one fallen human suffers more than what one individual can. There's only one exception, and we will discover that in Exploration 12. Think about this idea that human suffering is limited only to each individual. How does this help you, if it does, to look at the troubling issue of human suffering in a somewhat different light? shuttle. Imagine the following conversation. Two people are bemoaning the fate of all humanity. Death. That is, no matter how good the lives they live, no matter what they accomplish, it's going to end in the grave. Yeah, cracks Methuselah to a friend. We live, what, 800, 900 years, and then we're gone. What is 800 or 900 years in contrast to eternity? The reference for those length of lives is Genesis chapter 5. Though it's hard for us today to imagine what it would be like to live for hundreds of years, Methuselah was 187 years old when his son Lamech was born, and Methuselah lived 782 years after that. Yet, even the antediluvians facing the reality of death must have bemoaned what could have seemed like, to them, the shortness of life. Listen to Job chapter 7, verses 1 through 11. What is Job's complaint? Is not man forced to labor on earth? And are not his days like the days of a hired man? As a slave earnestly longs for the shade, and as a hired man eagerly awaits his wages, so am I allotted months of futility and suffering, and long nights of trouble and misery are appointed to me. When I lie down, I say, When shall I arise and the night be gone? But the night continues and I'm continually tossing until the dawning of day. My body is clothed with worms and a crust of dust. My skin is hardened and broken and loathsome and breaks out and runs. My days are swifter than a weaver shuttle and are spent without hope. Remember that my life is but breath, a puff of wind, a sight, a sigh. My eye will not see good again. The eye of him who sees me now will see me no more. Your eyes will be upon me 
but I will not be. As a cloud vanishes and is gone, so he who goes down to Sheol, the netherworld, the place of the dead, does not come up. He will not return again to his house, nor will his place know about him any more. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul, O Lord. Let's compare two other Bible texts. Psalms chapter 39, verses 5 and 11. Behold, you have made my days as short as hand widths, and my lifetime is as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath, a wisp of smoke, a vapor that vanishes. Selah. Verse 11. With rebukes you discipline man for sin. You consume like a moth what is precious to him. Surely every man is a mere breath, a wisp of smoke, a vapor that vanishes. Selah. James 4 and verse 14. Yet you do not know the least thing about what may happen in your life tomorrow. What is securing your life? You are merely a vapor, like a puff of smoke or a wisp of steam from a cooking pot that is visible for a little while and then vanishes into thin air. Back to Job. We heard Job seeking the rest and relief that would come from death. Now he's lamenting how quickly life goes by. He's saying, basically, that life is hard, full of toil and pain, and then we die. Here's a conundrum we often face. We bemoan how fast and fleeting life is, even when that life can be so sad and miserable. A Seventh-day Adventist woman wrote an article about her struggle with depression and even thoughts of suicide. And yet, she wrote, The worst part was that I was an Adventist who observed the lifestyle proven to help me live six years longer. That didn't make sense. Of course, at times of pain and suffering, so many things don't seem to make sense. Sometimes, Amid our pain, reason and rationality go by the wayside, and all we know is our hurt and fear, and we see no hope. Even Job, who really knew better, Job chapter 19 and verse 25, cried out in his despair and hopelessness, Oh, remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never again see good. Job chapter 7 and verse 7, New King James Version. Job, for whom the prospect of death now seemed nearer than ever, still bemoaned how short that existence was, no matter how presently miserable it was at the time. How does your understanding of the fall, of death, 
and of the promise of the resurrection help you put into perspective the whole question of how fast life goes by. Again, we must put ourselves in Job's position. Why is God doing all this to me, or why is he allowing this to happen to me? Job hasn't seen the big picture. How can he? He knows only what has happened around him and to him, and he doesn't understand any of it. Have you ever been in a similar situation? Let's continue hearing Job chapter 7. Verses 17 through 21. What is Job expressing? What questions is he asking? Considering his situation, why do the questions make so much sense? What is man that you should magnify him and think him important, and that you are concerned about him, and that you examine him every morning and try and test him every moment? Will you never turn your gaze away from me? It plagues me, nor let me alone until I swallow my spittle. If I have sinned, what harm have I done to you, O watcher of mankind? Why have you set me as a target for you, so that I am a burden to myself? Why then do you not pardon my transgression and take away my sin and guilt? for now I will lie down in the dust. And you will seek me diligently, but I will not be. Some scholars have argued that Job was mocking Psalm chapter 8, verse 4 through 6, New King James Version, which reads, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Psalm chapter 144, verse 3 and 4, sounds similar to Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. Lord, what is man that you take notice of him? Or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a mere breath. His days are like a shadow that passes away. The problem, though, is that Job was written long before the Psalms. In that case, then, perhaps the psalmist wrote in response to Job's lament. Either way, the question, Ma'inosh, what is man, is one of the most important we could ask. Who are we? Why are we here? What is the meaning and purpose of our lives? In Job's case, because he believes that God has targeted him, he is wondering why God bothers with him. God is so big, his creation so vast, why should he deal with Job at all? Why does God bother with any of us at all? John chapter 3 and verse 16 
and 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 may help you understand why God interacts with humanity. What reason do you hear? John chapter 3, verse 16 from the Amplified Bible. For God so greatly loved and dearly prized the world that he even gave his one and only begotten Son, so that whoever believes and trusts in him as Savior shall not perish, but have eternal life. And 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See what an incredible quality of love the Father has shown to us, that we be permitted to be named and called and counted the children of God. And so we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Ellen G. White penned these words, published as Testimonies for the Church, in Volume 4, page 563. As John beholds the height, the depth, and the breadth of the Father's love toward our perishing race, He is filled with admiration and reverence. He cannot find suitable language to express this love, but he calls upon the world to behold it. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. What a value this places upon man. Through transgression, the sons of men became subjects of Satan. Through the infinite sacrifice of Christ and faith in his name, the sons of Adam become the sons of God. By assuming human nature, Christ elevates humanity. Let's continue exploring. In an era so unprecedentedly illuminated by science and reason, the good news of Christianity became less and less convincing a metaphysical structure, less secure a foundation upon which to build one's life, and less psychologically necessary. The sheer improbability of the whole nexus of events was becoming painfully obvious that an infinite, eternal God would have suddenly become a particular human being in a specific historical time and place, only to be ignominiously executed. That a single brief life taking place two millennia earlier in an obscure, primitive nation on a planet now known to be a relatively insignificant piece of matter revolving about one star among billions in an inconceivably vast and impersonal universe, that such an undistinguished event 
should have an overwhelming cosmic or eternal meaning could no longer be a compelling belief for reasonable men. It was starkly implausible that the universe as a whole would have any pressing interest in this minute part of its immensity, if it had any interest at all. Under the spotlight of the modern demand for public, empirical, scientific corroboration of all statements of belief, the essence of Christianity withered. So wrote Richard Tarnas on page 305 in his book entitled Passion of the Western Mind, published in New York by Ballantine Books, 1991. What is the problem with this thought? What is the author missing? What does this excerpt teach you about the limits of what science and reason can know of the reality of God and His love for you? What does this show you about the need for revealed truth, truth that human science and reason cannot reach in and of themselves? Here are a few more thoughts to ponder and questions to consider. How would you as a Christian answer the question, What is man? How would your answer differ from that of people who don't believe in the God of the Bible? How surely are the dead beyond death, wrote Cormac McCarthy. Death is what the living carry with them. Why should your understanding of what happens after death give you comfort regarding our beloved dead? Can we not draw some consolation or any at all, knowing that they are at peace, at rest, free from so many of the toils and troubles of life? Why do you think that even in the most miserable of situations, most people cling to life, regardless of how bad that life seems to be? What does the cross teach you about the value of humanity, about the value of even a single life? ambassadorgroup.org This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.